0: Good time. So good. I mean, he's obviously on the list, and we'll see. My um, the one thing I'm going to find out is of the people I invite. How many are going to be working and unable to attend? So we're now we're now live on on YouTube. So Brandy, we're, uh, well, That's where we are on that. Make um, us panelists. Yeah, I hope that that whole thing last time. <laughs> You don't
1: do that again. You scared the hell out of me. <laughs> I don't know what
0: happened. Like I, I lost control of the meeting that I was that I'm hosting. So let me see if I can do this right. Tammy is going to be a co-host. Um yep. Brandy is going to be a co-host. I must have made one of you the host when it happened. Because I'm now the host, still okay. That's good. That was that was freaky. Whatever, whatever that was. <clears throat> okay, so we're gonna we're not recording now. We're now at six o'clock. I'm gonna go live. You guys are turning off, right? Yep. All right. Three, two, one. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Tuesday Night Rheumatology. It is Tuesday, the 25th of May. Um, And in this episode of Tuesday Night Rheumatology, it's more highlights from Room Now Live 2021, a live meeting held in Fort Worth on the 20th and 21st of March. And now we're doing these reprise editions for your viewing pleasure. Two hours of programming crunched into a one-hour session. So, tonight it's the third of three pods on rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, and in this pod, where we've chosen to really highlight the clinical um, presentations in this presentation, in, in this session. Um, Stan Cohen talking about liver disease, Jeff Curtis talking about the ACR COVID vaccination guidelines. There was a third presentation, we're going to slip that in. Dr. Lou Bridges talking about epigenetics. So, we'll give you a little taste of that presentation as well. Um, We'll have time at the end for your questions. Uh, Please do ask questions by using the Q&A button uh, and putting your questions forward. uh, And we'll be sure to discuss those at the end. Um, So our first presentation is um, going to be uh, Dr. Stanley Cohen talking about uh, liver disease. I start his lecture after he has already talked about Uh, LFTs, transaminitis, especially with DMARDs and methotrexate, and we're going to just get into fatty liver disease, NAFLD, or hepatic steatosis. So I'm going to start that uh, for you now. Let me just um, start this share screen. Okay, only the host, that's good. Here we go. Here's Dr.
2: Stan Cohen. Let's talk about uh, rheumatoid arthritis and liver disease. Uh, first of all, uh, liver damage is not one of the extra-articular manifestations of RA, like we think about uh, what, uh, pleural effusions, pleur- uh, pleurisy, pericarditis, uh, uh, sensory motor neuropathy, vasculitis, and so forth. So this is really something we deal with in clinic all the time, uh, but again, not an extra-articular manifestation. Uh, What do we uh, see in the clinic? Well, we see non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which we'll talk about, concomitant autoimmune liver diseases, uh, frequently transaminitis, secondary to NSAIDs, or other therapies. Rarely do we see, quote, infectious hepatitis, such as viral CMV hepatitis, amoebic abscess. And then we'll talk in some detail about hepatitis B, and to a lesser degree hepatitis C infection, which is now uh, better controlled. So, on this slide, uh, what we have uh, is uh, the, sort of the prevalence of non alcoholic fatty uh, liver disease. And again, depending on how you define it, the prevalence will differ. So, if it's uh, let's see if I could find the pointer. If it's divided by ultrasound, you can see frequencies in the range of 20 percent, by liver enzymes, uh, about the same, and then by biopsy, depending on the study, anywhere from 10 to 30 percent. But most feel in North America, In the United States, the range is somewhere between 20 to 30% of the population we see has non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And it's subdivided into two categories. Uh, First, you have non-alcoholic fatty liver. And then you have non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, or NASH. And the histology of NASH is basically similar to alcohol-induced injury. Uh, Liver function abnormalities are often the only finding. But again, the LFTs can be normal in these patients as well. As you would expect, uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is associated with metabolic syndrome, obesity, dyslipidemia, type 2 diabetes. And uh, patients with metabolic syndrome are more predisposed to develop scarring and fibrosis of the liver. More common in Hispanics. And the prevalence of NASH in the whole scheme of.
0: So folks, I'm back. I don't know what happened there. Um, that we have a pause in the playback of this session. I'm not sure why the sound went out, but it did. So I'm gonna ha- restart this um, this particular uh, presentation. I hope that you can hear me. If not, do send uh, comments through on the chat or on the Q and A. Um, again, I'm sorry about why that suddenly stopped. Let me uh, restart this at um, minute 405 uh, in the presentation. So hold on. The
2: surface by positive greater than six months Uh, We do know that. Hold on, um, she did have supercellar fusion. uh, Again, these are from earlier.
0: Okay, it looks like there was a a a dropout of sound for about two minutes. I'm going to resume the presentation where the sound uh, restarts. Sorry for this particular delay, but we're going to go back to Dr. Um, Cohen talking about hepatitis C
2: in this century suggested uh, less than 1% of RA patients had hepatitis C viral infection. Uh, prior to the very effective therapies, uh, TENERCEP was the most frequently used therapy in RA patients. Uh, again, there was some suggestion that TNF, uh, increased TNF levels played a role in more severe hepatitis C infection, and inhibiting TNF might have a positive benefit was used both with and without antiviral therapy and was actually quite safe. And you can see the 2012 ACR recommendations, RA recommendations recommended a in patients of hepatitis C viral infection. So now when we see these patients who've had 12 weeks of uh, uh, direct antiviral therapy, uh, you know, if we have recent uh, hepatitis C viral RNA, that will suffice, I'll check it just to make sure there's no evidence for infection and then we're pretty much free to do whatever we want to do as far as our therapies. So let's move on to hepatitis B and uh, talk about a case that uh, actually one of my associates uh, had in his practice. 64-year-old female presented with symmetrical polyarthritis, 14 tender joints, six swollen joints, c 30, so high disease activity. Seropositive for CTP, ACPA and rheumatoid factor, set rate of 98, CRP elevated, labs otherwise normal, including liver functions. X-rays revealed no erosions. Uh, She she did have uh, suprapatellar fusions. Uh, Placed on low-dose prednisone, five milligrams daily, which now the ACR says we shouldn't do, but we still do, with meloxicam, with follow-up appointment in two weeks to discuss DMR therapy, quantiferon gold, hepatitis panel ordered as we do to prepare for more aggressive therapy. Patient returned and on low-dose prednisone was a little better. Uh, now a of 23 initial plan was to initiate methotrexate, quantiferin gold was negative, but surprisingly she was hep B surface antigen positive, surface antibody negative, hep B core antibody positive, and hepatitis C antibody negative. She had low level of hepatitis B viral DNA, as noted, by copies and then logarithmic measure. And so my associate decided to uh, give her sulfasalazine Prednisone was continued and appropriately referred her to a hepatologist. The hepatologist uh, got a history that she had had a single blood transfusion in the past, uh, no family history of liver disease, did an abdominal ultrasound, attention to the liver, no hepatomegaly or evidence for hepatocellular carcinoma. Her hepatitis B early antigen, E antigen, was negative. Hepatitis B E antibody was positive. And hepatologists report back that this patient is a hepatitis B carrier. His his recommendation was if patient required more aggressive therapy, such as biologics or targeted synthetic DMRs, patient would require antiviral therapy, suggested monitoring liver functions presently, and checking hepatitis B viral load every three to six months. So the patient continued uh, with active disease on sulfasalazine, prednisone hydroxychloroquine. Shockingly, she didn't listen to her doctor, and she refused to take antiviral therapy despite multiple discussions of the benefit-risk and the need for more aggressive therapy. Her disease activity fluctuated between low and moderate disease activity, but unfortunately, over time, patients sustained joint damage. Hepatitis B viral load, DNA load, remained very low, and with the most recent levels, uh, last time uh, she was seen, were not present. And LFTs were consistently within normal limits. Here's the same patient, more commonly what we see in our practice, and uh, active disease. and This time, surface antigen was negative, but hepatitis B core antibody was positive. So let's talk about uh, how we handle these patients and uh, go through what uh, uh, this testing uh, teaches us. So again, in 2015, the WHO said there were 257 million cases of chronic hepatitis B worldwide. But actually, at that time, they suggested there were less than a million cases in the North America. So it's certainly not as common as it is in the Far East, where it's a significant issue. Um, we do know that hepatitis B viral reactiv- reactivation is a complication of immunosuppressive therapy. And this has been developing over the last 30 years uh, in the literature. It can occur in oncology, transplant, as well as our diseases and our friend's diseases, dermatologists and GI. It has different definitions, which can throw us off a little bit, but basically, it's abrupt increase in HPV replication in a patient with chronic or past hepatitis B virus. And the syndrome can be asymptomatic. The patients have normal liver functions, and they go on to liver failure and death. And this is one of those immune reconstitution phenomena that you see. You may have them on therapy with rituximab or uh, Zelljans or something of that nature. You take them off. And then they get fulminant hepatic failure after the immunosuppressive therapy has been removed. So, hepatitis B viral reactivation has been observed both in patients with chronic as well as what we consider resolved hepatitis B viral infection. It's largely, largely preventable with appropriate screening. The antiviral therapies are 90 percent effective at suppressing hepatitis B viral uh, reactivation are something that we need to consider, along with uh, help from our GI liver people. So again, uh, the definition is detectable hepatitis B viral DNA when they previously had undetectable DNA, or greater than a 1 to 2 logarithmic increase in hepatitis B B, uh, DNA. Something called sero-revision, when a patient previously hepatitis B surface antigen negative, core antibody positive, becomes hepatitis B surface antigen positive again. And just to remind you, uh, these serologic changes and changes in viral load can occur with or without hepatitis. Severe hepatitis occurs in about 25 to 50 percent of patients. So, for those of you who heard Dr. Wang, you now have your eye chart here. Uh, But let's just run through this. So, this first, these are the testing that we do. And you can see this is someone who's negative for surface antigen core and surface antibody. So that's someone who's not been exposed. That's someone who needs to be vaccinated uh, for hepatitis B. Uh, This is a patient with hepatitis, anti hepatitis B B positive and surface antibody positive. So C and surface antibody with negative hepatitis B surface antigen. These are people who've had acute, these are people who've had hepatitis B infection previously, and they now have antibody, surface antibody, and core antibody. So the presence of the core antibody tells you these people have had previous infection. Uh, These folks here in the middle, they're surface antibody positive for negative for core antibody, negative for surface antigen. They have been vaccinated. Uh, Here we have patients who are surface antibody positive, core antibody positive, IgM anti-core antibody positive, and surface antibody negative. And these are the people who are acutely infected. And this is where I made a mistake years ago when one of my patients ordered a a hepatitis panel. And what I ordered was the acute hepatitis panel. And that was negative for core antibody. Later on, uh, it was picked up by uh, one of her other physicians that she was core antibody positive, because she had an IgG core antibody. So when you're ordering your hepatitis panels, generally in practice, we order a chronic hepatitis panel. But if you have a patient who comes in with transaminitis and you're worried about acute hepatitis, order the acute panel. Uh, then we have the oops, go back. Good. There we go. Then we have the um, chronically infected patients, which is what we are concerned about. These are people who have hepatitis B surface antigen positive, hepatitis core positive and negative um, for surface antibody. And then we have these patients who actually make up the most common scenario. We, I see, and in, 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 in you and others may see in clinic. These are core antibody positive patients who are negative for uh, surface antigen and negative for. Uh, surface antibody so what about those patients you're doing the hepatitis panel you're doing your job and you get a hepatitis uh, core antibody positive IgG uh, the prevalence has been reported about uh, 0.4 to 1.7 percent of blood donors in low prevalence areas we are a low prevalence area if you're in India or the Far East maybe 5 to 10 percent of people will have core antibody positive so what are explanations you might see it when someone's recovering from hepatitis B, uh, hepatitis B viral infection, which is predominantly an IgM core. So in the first few months after infection, you know, definition of someone with chronic hepatitis B is six months or greater persistence of hepatitis B surface antigen. So it might be in the first few months after the infection, and they may be distantly immune, and just very low levels of anti-hepatitis B surface antigen are not measurable in the assays. False positive uh, anti-core antibodies have been noted, and we used to think this was the explanation for most of them. Uh, The assays are better now. It's less likely. And again, even in those patients with core antibodies who were felt to be false positive, hepatitis B viral DNA can be found in up to 20% of patients. It's also possible that the levels of hepatitis B surface antigen are undetectable in the serum but present in the liver and patient is chronically infected, which is why we have to worry about this population of patients as well. Again, this is uh, looking at chronic hepatitis B viral infection, uh, surface antibody positive greater than six months. And just focusing down here, this is what we deal with in practice. Uh, These are the patients who are core antibody positive. Um, They may be surface antigen positive or surface antigen uh, negative. So and, oops, go back again. We'll get there. Sorry about that, guys. So uh, inactive chronic hepatitis B viral infection or occult, so hepatitis C positive, core antibody positive, and this is with surface antigen and core antibody uh, positive. So already one more question. In RA patients with anti-core antibody, hepatitis B core antibody positivity, antiviral prophylaxis indicated for which therapies? TNFi. IL-6 monoclonal antibodies, rituximab, or methotrexate?
1: All right, so coming up on 70, 80 people, 75% rituximab, 16% TNF, 9% methotrexate,
3: and 2% IL-6.
2: Thank you. So there's been a great deal of literature again over the last uh, two decades, and uh, all of our therapies, uh, you can find case reports or small series for TNF inhibitors, rituximab, targeted synthetic they have been associated with hepatitis B viral re- reactivation in approximately 24 percent of patients. Uh, hepatitis uh, Core antibody positive only, uh, the 24 percent, and if hepatitis B surface antigen positive, another 10 percent of patients may are at risk for reactivation. The presence of hepatitis B surface antibody in those patients reduces the likelihood of hepatitis B viral reactivation. Conventional synthetic DMARDS to a lesser degree, but high dose glucocorticoids have been associated with hepatitis B viral replication in surface antigen positive patients. Viral prophylaxis should be utilized, and we'll discuss this in some detail as we finish up, in high risk patients and continued for six to 12 months post-therapy. And again, these case reports and series informed the professional societies which have come up with the guidelines that we now utilize. So the first group was the American Gastroenterology Association which came up with their clinical decision support tool and in your pre-learning I gave you the reference for their whole methodology and basically the literature review that they did. Uh, they suggested that patients at high risk had a reactivation risk of greater than 10% and they looked at patients who were surface antigen positive and core antibody positive, or surface antigen negative and core, just core antibody positive. And any patients receiving B-cell depleters, antiviral therapy is indicated. It should be continued for 12 months after treatment uh, as prophylaxis. Uh, on the this part of the slide, hepatitis B surface antigen positive and core antibody positive, uh, certainly for certain uh, anti-metabolites, and high dose steroids, again, uh, these patients should be considered for antiviral therapy. For moderate risk patients, and again, here the quality of evidence for the higher risk was quite good. The, the evidence now for moderate risk and low, low risk is uh, quite weak. But again, looking at uh, patients who are hep uh, B surface antigen positive and core antibody positive or core antibody positive and surface antigen negative, looking at TNF inhibitors. Um, uh, they actually suggested antiviral prophylaxis, uh, looking at other cytokine inhibitors as well, including Avaticep, Ad- 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 recommended that, and also for tyrosine kinase inhibitors, imantinib, and this would certainly include our uh, JAK inhibitors. Uh, for patients who were both um, antibody-positive and core antibody-positive, uh, uh, patients taking low-dose prednisone, uh, they recommended uh, a treatment, and patients who are surface antigen negative, a core antibody positive, higher dose prednisone recommended uh, treatment with antiviral therapy uh, with treatment for at least six months after discontinuation of treatment. And you'll see as we finish up with the ACR's recommendations and the American Association for Study of Liver Diseases, these differ somewhat. And these are patients at low risk, uh, patients taking uh, traditional immunosuppressive agents such as methotrexate or azathioprine or low dose corticosteroids, and they suggested not using routine antiviral prophylaxis, but monitoring the patients uh, over time. Uh, So again, just to summarize that portion, uh, clearly any B cell depleter, they're at high risk for patients uh, who are just core antibody positive or herpoheptides B surface antigen positive, high-dose corticosteroids, somewhat lower risk with TNF inhibitors, and the lowest risk with methotrexate and azathioprine. And I show this slide because this is from the Calabrese family that uh, has given this slide to many of us. Again, the patients at higher risk are the patients surface antigen positive and have high levels of hepatitis B viral DNA. The carriers who are hepatitis B surface antigen positive generally with core antibody positivity with low hepatitis B viral DNA and lesser with core antibody alone or resolved hepatitis B uh, viral infection. And here is uh, the slide from the AASLD which uh, basically uh, inform the ACR and their recommendations. If someone's hepatitis B surface antigen positive with high-risk therapy, and their recommendation was greater than 20%, which is generally with the B-cell depletors and TNF inhibitors, uh, check baseline hepatitis B viral DNA and initiate initiate antiviral therapy before simultaneous with the start of therapy. If they're core antibody positive high-risk therapy, the recommendations are the same. If they're core antibody positive without surface antigen and other therapy, you can monitor hepatitis B viral DNA regularly, initiate antiviral therapy if hepatitis B viral DNA becomes detectable. If they're negative, uh, for both antigen and core antibody, they suggest vaccination. So here's the ACR recommendations as we wrap up. For patients initiating rituximab therapy or hepatitis B core antibody positive, regardless of hepatitis B surface antigen status, prophylactic antiviral therapy is strongly recommended over frequent monitoring of viral load and liver enzymes alone. For patients initiating any biologic DMARD or targeted synthetic DMARD or hepatitis B core antibody positive and hepatitis B surface antigen positive, prophylactic antiviral therapy is strongly indicated over frequent monitoring alone. For patients initiating non-rituximab biologic DMARD or targeted synthetic DMARD who are hepatitis B core antibody positive and hepatitis B surface antibody antigen negative, frequent monitoring of viral load, and liver enzymes is conditionally recommended over
0: prophylactic antiviral therapy. Okay, so thank you, Stan. That was um, uh, very comprehensive, covering hep B, hep C, you know, guidelines for treatment. I want to clarify a few things that were actually clarified in the Q&A session. Um, One, um, patients who are hep B surface antigen Surface antigen positive patients are now high risk patients. They shouldn't get TNF inhibitors, you know. They shouldn't, you know, um, um, be on many different biologics, in fact. And if you gotta use a biologic, you probably need to be um, uh, putting, them in, putting them on background prophylaxis against HEPI reactivation. The patients who are HEP B surface antigen negative and core antibody positive, the so-called resolved infection. Um, when those patients are subjected to TNF inhibitors and other biologics, excluding rituximab, the risk of reactivation is 2%. So that's a low risk population. And that's what we talked about in the ACR guidelines. Those people can be followed signs and symptoms, LFTs and viral loads. uh, And you don't have to start them on antiviral prophylaxis unless their viral load is high. And if you don't know what to do, refer them to a hepatologist. It should be a hepatologist. Not all GI guys are good at this. Some are, but not all are. So if you have the luxury of having a hepatologist to help you manage this, that's always really good. The high-risk patients are, he reviewed it. It's people on rituximab. And, uh, and, and pay people, any of our patients who are uh, FB surface antigen positive. But then 20 milligrams or more a day of steroids is considered also high-risk. Use of cytotoxics, also considered high-risk. So um, we have one question. Are people comfortable using methotrexate with a past history of hepatitis B? Just wondering. Um, The story there is pretty clear. If you have a past history of hepatitis B or any kind of liver disease, alcoholic disease um, that affects the liver, with the exception of hepatoxia steatosis, where you can use methotrexate safely, um, you probably shouldn't be using methotrexate or leflinamide. In fact, that's in the guidelines for lopinavir that a prior history of hepatitis B or C infection should preclude the use. Now, in these examples where you shouldn't be using it, someone who is B surface antigen positive and needs a TNF inhibitor, you shouldn't use it. You know, chance of reactivation is too high. But if you have to use it, well, then you put them on antiviral prophylaxis and you worry and you watch. So we can get around to more liver questions <clears throat> at the end of the session. We're now going to hear from uh, Dr. Lou Bridges, who had a great talk, 30-minute talk on epigenetics. He reviews the differences between genetics and epigenetics at the front of the lecture that I'm not going to show you. He shows you a few examples of epigenetics, and what I'm not going to show you is how epigenetics is important in RA. If you're interested in that, please watch that presentation. It's available on Room now and also on our, our YouTube channel. So Let's go and resume the uh, presentation now with Dr. Lou Bridges, who is uh, chief of rheumatology at uh, Hospital for Special Surgery in New York. We also want to thank Janssen, the sponsors of Room Now Live, and also sponsors of this particular session uh, for their help uh, in programming. So here's Dr. Lou Bridges.
1: So, how is it different from genetics? Genetics is the nucleotide sequence from a gene that provides the blueprint for a protein. Genetic mutations or polymorphisms may change the structure or function of that protein. An example is sickle cell anemia. So in sickle cell anemia, there's a missense mutation shown in the red letters here. And this is in the beta globin gene. This leads to a change in the RNA sequence shown here as a uracil. This then leads to a change in the protein, the amino acid that is um, encoded for here is valine. This leads to a structural change in the hemoglobin molecule so that it clumps, and that results in the sickling of red blood cells. So this is a genetic uh, single mutation example of a human disease. Epigenetics is epi comes from the, the Greek word upon or on or over. And so really what epigenetics means is influences upon genetics. So epigenetics is a study of how behaviors and environments such as diet, exercise, smoking, exposure to chemicals, drugs, etc., cause changes in the way that genes work. So epigenetic changes are reversible. And unlike the DNA sequence, Uh, which is irreversible, these genetic changes can be altered, epigenetic changes can be altered. And a a simplified way to think about it is epigenetics affects gene expression and it turns genes on or off so that they can have variable degrees of influence in human traits and in human diseases. So comparing uh, disease states to control state, to controls might help to understand disease and potentially lead to new ways to diagnose or treat these human diseases. So next, what are some of the common epigenetic mechanisms that regulate gene expression? So this is a complex landscape, and I'll highlight a few of the common variants that are common um, mechanisms that are often studied in epigenetic analyses. So I'll go into these in a little bit more detail, but they generally include DNA modifications such as methylation or hydroxymethylation or addition of a methyl group to an adenine here. There are other ones as well. The second general category is chromatin modifications. Chromatin is the highly highly, um, uh, condensed uh, DNA in human chromosomes. So the DNA and the histones around it, so there can be variations in the histone variants or modifications in them. A third way is through the presence of what's called non-coding RNAs that can degrade messenger RNA or uh, somehow affect uh, the um, turning on and off through direct mechanisms. And then finally RNA modifications, which I will not spend much time on today. So. With regard to DNA modifications, uh, there are methylations uh, groups that can be added. And so the way to think about this is a DNA methylation group that is added onto specific DNA, it blocks the proteins that go on and latch onto the DNA to read it and therefore transcribe it. And these uh, methylation, uh, methyl groups rather, can be removed through a process called demethylation. And in general, methylation turns genes off, makes them inaccessible to be transcribed, and demethylation turns them on. So here are some examples shown here. So DNA can be modified at the cytosine C or adenine A residues by the addition of chemical groups, and cytosines specifically can be modified by methylation, hydroxymethylation, formylation, carboxylation, and adenines are typically modified by methylation. And most of what I'll talk about today is methylation. A second uh, second epigenetic mechanism is modification of um, of the chromatin itself. So this is a picture of a nucleosome. The nucleosome is 146 base pairs of DNA wrapped around a histone octamer. So here are some histones with subcomponents histone 2a, 2b, 3, and 4. Um, so this octamer is here, the DNA is, round, is, is wound around it, and when it's tightly wound, it is not accessible to be transcribed. So there are, are ways that the nucleosome can change position so that a particular genetic region is open up for expression, or there can be the modifications similar to what we talked about before, or variants. And this is what um, the structure looks like uh, from a more molecular point of view, with you see the double helix here, which is the DNA, and in here are the histones, um, uh, 2A, 2B, 3, and 4. So um, this is an important variation that we'll talk about as well.
3: patients with autoimmune and inflammatory rheumatic disease. That's this acronym.
0: Okay, so we're going to jump right next into Jeff Curtis's presentation. Jeff is, a, as you know, a professor of uh, rheumatology internal medicine at University of Alabama, Birmingham. Uh, he is, has led the ACR um, US task force on the development of guidelines for COVID vaccination amongst rheumatic disease patients. They've come up with guidelines, not recommendations. Um, and the first 10 minutes of his presentation, he went over a lot of the um, front matter that's needed to understand guideline development and whatnot, the process they use, that these are recommendations, that these are expert opinion, that there's a lot of data to go over this. And I, uh, cut that out if you want to learn more about it. It's in the paper that they presented, um, and you can re- re- reference that um, on the Room Now website or on the uh, YouTube video of just his presentation. But we're going to join him as he starts to talk about the uh, particulars of uh, uh, COVID vaccines uh, as they would be used by our patients in clinic. So, uh, We'll join Jeff as he gets into this.
3: A I I R D, and I'm gonna here, here to far just keep referring to this as autoimmune disease patients just because that's a mouthful and using that acronym is rather clumsy. Um, so autoimmune disease patients are at higher risk for hospitalized COVID and worse outcomes compared to the general population. So so those are actually two separate things. So you're at higher risk to develop hospitalized or serious COVID as an outcome, And then conditional on developing COVID that people seem to have worse outcomes. That can include, you know, the need for intensive care unit stays or mechanical ventilation Uh, that could include death or persistent infection. So in the publication that is forthcoming and might be out by the time that you see this, those were separate statements, but we've collapsed them mainly for simplicity as part of this summary. It was more controversial than I thought because many people said, you know, well, I'm not even sure that this is true that patients with our diseases have a higher risk for infection. Maybe they have worse outcomes, maybe they don't. You know, some of it might be related to comorbidities. Let me give you an example somebody with rheumatoid arthritis who smokes has interstitial lung disease. And because she has interstitial lung disease, if we accept that chronic pulmonary disease is a risk factor for bad COVID outcomes, you could say, well, you know, it's not the RA that's a risk factor, it's the ILD that's her risk factor. And if she didn't have ILD then and only had RA, maybe she's not at higher risk. However, in my example, she, the fact she has ILD is causally related to her RA. And so, in fact, you can't disentangle those things. So that was, in fact, the controversy where there might be comorbidities that are either caused by, like in my example, or certainly influenced by some of our rheumatic diseases or their treatments, you can't very effectively disentangle the comorbidity from the disease itself. And so at a very high level, does it really matter why they're at higher risk? You know, if, if in my example, the patient has ILD and that's what's putting her at risk, but that's related to her RA or, you know, in a different scenario, somebody with psoriatic arthritis and the metabolic syndrome, you know, is on steroids for a time and, you know, develops overt diabetes, et cetera, and diabetes is the risk factor for bad outcomes. You know, upstream of that was the fact that this patient had psoriatic arthritis and got a bunch of steroids, et cetera, that might be related to his disease. And again, you can't really disentangle is the comorbidity truly separate and independent from the rheumatic disease and its treatment. And so that's where this voting statement ended up being crafted in the way that it did. So given that higher risk, and I'll show you a little bit of data to that point, you know, autoimmune patients should be prioritized for vaccination before the non-prioritized general population of similar age and sex. So whether anyone listens to rheumatologists in terms of public policy about who should get COVID vaccination, you know, you can answer that your own self. The idea behind the statement is reminiscent or at least a, a bit of a proxy for what the CDC might term category one C patients that due to a comorbidity that puts them at higher risk that they should be prioritized. Now. I can tell you that not everybody is adhering to vaccine implementation according to those 1A, 1B, 1C, et cetera phases. And there was at least some thought that the CDC might not persist in that categorization and might come up with something different. So that's why this categorization of 1C isn't mentioned here, but it's the idea behind it that's relevant. Again, does this mean that that autoimmune patients are at higher risk for 80 than 80 year olds in nursing homes? No, of course not. And that's why there's this caveat between about age and and sex. A few other things in bold. So the expected response to COVID vaccination for many autoimmune patients on systemic therapies is likely to be blunted in magnitude and duration compared to the general population. So the vernacular is, the vaccine may just not work as well that's that's the bottom line i can tell you that there might be some unintended consequences and some of my patients have been quite concerned about this and said well gosh if the vaccine doesn't work as well and there might be some risk for flare we'll get to that in a second you know maybe i just shouldn't take it that might be the logical interpretation but in fact that's incorrect and the argument that i'll make is you know let's say in clinical trials the vaccine was you know 94 95% effective in the healthy volunteers let's just say hypothetically that it was only 70% effective for somebody with your condition I made that number up, nobody has that number about how well vaccination works in patients that are on immunosuppressive or modulatory therapies. But let's just say that it was 70% effective. You know, 70% effective is better than 0% if that patient chose not to get vaccinated. So the point is, is that even though it might not be quite as good, if you're starting from a very high number, you know, 70, 80, 90% and it's somewhat diminished, you know, that's still gonna almost certainly be substantial enough for patients to motivate them to get vaccinated. So that's where talking about the magnitude of response, even if you're speculating, uh, in my opinion, is helpful to uh, facilitate conversations with patients to say on balance, uh, you know, vaccination is almost certainly a good idea for some protection is better than no protection if you forego vaccination. The last statement I want to speak to, a theoretical risk exists for flare or disease worsening following vaccination. That has been evidenced in what are mostly case reports from other vaccines. So again, is it a risk? Sure, it's a potential risk at a minimum. However, the task force rated that the benefit of vaccination for rheumatic and musculoskeletal disease patients outweighs the potential risk for new onset autoimmunity. That could be new onset symptoms or manifestations related to their disease. That could be other things, you know, Bell's palsy or Guillain-Barre. A few cases of that have in fact been reported, so that is a legitimate concern. You know, in the in the Moderna trial, there was one case of new onset rheumatoid arthritis that that investigator judged as probably being related to vaccination. That said, you know, in trials of tens of thousands of people, there's single digit case reports at, at this point. Um, I'd also be quick to remind people there have definitely also been case reports of new onset autoimmunity after COVID infection. Not vaccination, but after COVID infection. So I remind people of this, that simply getting infected, even though you might feel crummy or have sort of long hauler type symptoms, that people can develop nuanced onset autoimmunity. There's been published case reports of bona fide vasculitis and rheumatoid arthritis following COVID infection. So lest one be concerned that this is only a vaccine safety issue, We see this even after COVID infection and and that needs to be taken into account as people are weighing the pros and cons of vaccination. Let me give you a little bit of population based data uh, that is countrywide and rather lacking in the United States, but in countries like Denmark, where there can be national registers that link people Creole to Grave, you know, you can do certain things a little bit more nimbly than maybe we can do here in the U.S. with that same speediness. So I'm showing you a paper that at the time this is recorded is still in press, so I apologize for the the formatting, but I've circled the most important element. So the column headers, they, they looked at all inflammatory rheumatic diseases, and the bulk of the data is for people with rheumatoid arthritis. And I've circled in red the incidence rates of per thousand Patient years of hospitalization with COVID infection. So maybe the most important column is the second one. It's the rheumatoid arthritis column, that's the 1.97 versus the general population in the rightmost column that I've circled, 1.26. So if you then say, well, let's control for H and sex, what you end up with is that rheumatoid arthritis has a 1.8 full, four-fold increased risk in hospitalized COVID infection compared to the general population. There's at least five studies that I know of that has, have substantial sample size that is beyond single center experiences that suggest that, you know, somewhere maybe in the 1.3 to 1.8 fold range, uh, we see these estimates for people with rheumatology conditions, RA probably being more common among them. But there does appear to be an increased risk based on population studies. In this particular one, even though they're able to look countrywide, Um, there are still relatively small numbers of cases for people with RA or other rheumatic diseases. um, But nevertheless, it does seem like that this paper and some that are referenced in the forthcoming publication in arthritis and rheumatology do do seem consistent with the fact that COVID is more likely to occur, at least hospitalized COVID in people with certain rheumatic diseases like RA. So several other guidance statements, and maybe the most important one to message to patients. So, rheumatic and musculoskeletal disease patients and autoimmune patients should get vaccinated. Hard stop. So, yes, the vaccine is recommended. In fact, this might seem so obvious that it, you know it's it's you know milk and apple pie. On the other hand, at least for a time in Canada, the Canadian provincial authorities said, "Well, gosh, rheumatic disease patients on immune suppressing therapies weren't represented in the trials." Those people shouldn't be vaccinated, which you might say, gosh, that seems a little odd. And at a minimum, you know, those people should be prioritized because some, at least some of them, are at higher risk. But in fact, at least for a time, they were prohibited. Uh, So without saying things like this, bad things can happen like that. I can also tell you that there's a large pharmacy chain in the US that has been saying that if you're on any biologic, you shouldn't get vaccinated without having stopped for more than 90 days. You know, that might be relevant for a live virus vaccine, none of which these are not even the newer ones um, and certainly not the mRNA vaccine. So we've definitely had seen examples in the United States of patients getting refused vaccination. So hopefully these sorts of guidance statements will help. The second bolded statement here that I've listed, you know, patients that don't have an autoimmune disease, but if they're on immunomodulatory therapy, even off-label, should be vaccinated in the same fashion as anybody else that is represented in these guidelines. So for example, you know, if you have a patient that you're using, say, methotrexate to reduce the immunogenicity of pegloticase, you would just follow the methotrexate-specific guidance statements, um, even though arguably, you know, gout is um, not quite of the same magnitude as is RA or lupus or vasculitis in terms of, you know, some of the immunomodulatory or suppressive treatments they might get. But the fact is, if they're on the same medicines, then, uh, then you should be thoughtful about that as well. The third statement based on the data for the mRNA COVID vaccines in the US, at least at the time, there's no preference for one over the other. You should just get whatever's available. Uh, You know, these are specific to the two mRNA vaccines. Of course, with the newest one that is available under the emergency use authorization, um, it is not it is not represented here. The task force is currently uh, revising their statements. If I were to speculate, I might guess that they will feel quite similarly that you know whatever is available to you probably is the one that you should get and don't delay waiting for one that might be perceived to be better but probably isn't, or at least is far from certain that one might be better than another for whatever reason. So get what's available. And then finally, and perhaps among the more controversial statements, and the last one in bold on this slide, midway down. So healthcare providers should not routinely order any lab testing to assess immunity post-vaccination, You know, is my patient protected, or to assess the need for vaccination in somebody who hasn't yet received it. So why is that? So remember that you can test for antibodies to a couple of things. You could test for spike which is what you what you would want to following post vaccine, but that's actually not what some of the commercial assays measure they measure nucleocapsid and that might make sense if you're trying to detect infection, but not so much vaccination. And so for many people, they got the wrong test if what you're trying to do is assess post vaccine response. So that's one important issue is, are you even ordering the right one? The second is even if you're ordering antibodies against spike following vaccination, you know, I think we would argue that there's not a whole lot of evidence about what you should do with the number. There's not a lab correlative protection. You can't say, oh, if you're at this level of an antibody response with XYZ assay, that means the patient's protected. That would be a so-called lab-based correlative protection. Mrs. Smith, your number was whatever, so you're protected. We don't have that. We don't have science that suggests that. So, you know, the task force probably would contend, I I certainly would, that we don't yet know what to do with the number, but it certainly would probably be beyond the evidence to tell Mrs. Smith that she's, you know, protected and and thus reassure her because we don't have that relevant for individual Patients, you know, at best we might soon have that for groups of patients, um, but but nevertheless, at this time we just don't have the science to support that in terms of routine clinical management. On the other hand, I definitely can see that that will accrue, and there certainly might be settings that this would make a lot of sense. We just don't have that yet. Um, in terms of holding sta- holding medicines. For the vast majority of our therapies on the first two large rows here, there was no recommendation to either hold the drug or modify vaccine timing. The only exceptions were for methotrexate, Janus kinase inhibitors, and sub q There was a recommendation to hold methotrexate for a week after each dose for those with well-controlled disease. That was based on the the Korean RA trial um, that did this, that found a better immunogenic response to influenza vaccination if you held methotrexate. Now, when they did that, they held for two weeks, not just one week. So you might say, well, why did why was then their recommendation to only hold for a single week and not two like in that trial? The reason in part was related to the practicalities. If you're trying to give a two dose vaccine, you hold methotrexate, for two two doses and then you might give one methotrexate dose in the middle and then you get your second mRNA vaccine and hold for another two. Now the patient has been off therapy for four weeks and that's just a complicated confusing set of instructions. So mostly for practicality and simplicity, this was the recommendation just hold for a single dose. With the idea that Janus kinase inhibitors and because of their profound effects on interferon signaling, you know, might attenuate vaccine response, there was a recommendation to hold for just one week. They obviously have quite short, short half-lives and so that was felt to be a biologically relevant window. And then finally for abatacept sub-Q. So this is a little bit different. The recommendation was to hold for a week before and after just the first dose of the vaccine. Why is that? Well, the reason for that and just the first dose is that priming a naive T cell to recognize a virus that it's never seen before is critically important. You know, that first date or that handshake needs to go well and a Baticept I mean, that can block other vaccine responses, particularly for an antigen that the immune system has never seen before, unlike flu or pneumonia, where every vaccine we give is mostly just a booster of an infection we've seen something like in the past. Not so with SARS-CoV-2. It was really the priming of the naive T cell that was felt to be most important in relation to the Baticept sub-Q um, uh, timing considerations. A few other statements and, and timing around for abatacept IV and cyclophosphamide, people can read that. The rituximab bears a little bit of mention. So the recommendation based upon mostly studies with humoral immunity outcomes was to schedule vaccination. So the vaccine series was initiated about four weeks before the next cycle. So if you're giving it every six months, you would start the vaccine series roughly uh, about five months into it. So that's the that's the guidance, although there's some caveats about that. The caveats around several of the things I just described are shown mostly on this slide for context. A few of the foundational principles are shown here, a couple in bold. The one in the middle, there's no direct evidence about vaccine safety or efficacy. All the timing considerations I've just described are predicated not on safety concerns, but on trying to optimize vaccine response. Also, there's no reason to expect vaccine harms will trump benefits in rheumatic patients. And then the second bolded statements: the risk of deferring vaccination and failing to mitigate COVID risk should be weighed against a possible blunted response to the vaccine if you give it under suboptimal circumstances. So, for example, you know, patients on 40 milligrams of prednisone has gotten rituximab, you know, two months ago and has poorly controlled disease. Should you vaccinate then, or should you wait a couple months, hoping she's on less steroids and is further out from her rituximab? You know. There's pros and cons both ways. There's not a right answer. Some protection is better than nothing. You know, if she can do physical distancing and is at low risk otherwise, then maybe she can wait. On the other hand, you know, if she's a healthcare worker, a teacher and is constantly exposed, then maybe she can't. So this again is where there's a judgment call here that you need to balance the, you know, should I delay or should I do it now? In general, the task force recommended that now is probably better for the vast majority of people. There's a few myths or assumptions that I've collated from a variety of uh, mostly patient sources that I would urge you just to think about, and we can talk about this in some of the Q&A. Hopefully some of these positive guidance statements give you some armamentarium about how to respond to some of these. You know, myth number three, uh, I have an immune condition, the vaccine won't protect me. Again, we don't have direct evidence yet, but there's no concern that this should make you sick like a live virus vaccine would have concerns for, even with the new adenoviral vector vaccines. And then a few other things about flare that again, we don't have a lot of data. The, the vaccine trial and for the influenza vaccine, 11% of people who held methotrexate two weeks flared um, using the DAS and worsening of the DAS by more than 1.2 units versus 6%. Is 11% higher than 6%? Sure, but it's not that common overall. And that's for flu vaccine, but you know, not, not a huge difference regardless.
0: Okay, thanks to Dr. Jeff uh, Curtis, Um, a great effort, um, a really hard task to put all that together and um, make um, a common sense argument for the approach to our patients who need vaccination. Uh, You know, the numbers on vaccination right now are, you know, 100 million people have been vaccinated. The projections are that by November, it's going to be uh, uh, close to 200 million or 63% of the population. That's if we're going at the same rate we're going right now. I think we need to we need to get to like 260 million to really get to herd immunity. So we're gonna have to be make a big effort to get our patients uh, vaccinated. Your patients are a big problem, uh, your coworkers, a lot of healthcare workers do not wanna get vaccinated. I don't get it, nurses especially. You know, MAs and whatnot, you got to talk to these people. They have to be your emissaries. Doctors don't have a problem with this. Here are the two best arguments I have about vaccination that I want to share. One, um, during the COVID era, influenza's gone way down, cold stifles way down. The state of Texas, influenza rates are down 98%. Why is that? Because of these things, masks. That and six foot distancing, and no more handshakes and hugs. That's made a dramatic drop in common infections, and especially influenza. I think in Dallas County, is less than 100 cases when normally we have thousands. By the way, in the vaccinations we have against COVID, about 100 times more effective than these masks. The second biggest uh, issue is um, the safety. This, these were rushed into production. Um, that they're can't, We don't know if they're truly safe. That's nonsense. Safety is best measured. Well, first off, no the FDA, there was a big rush, but there was a big, gigantic financial and and political and scientific effort. This is a worldwide event, billions of dollars spent. That's why we got a vaccine developed in less than a year. Um, It's a tremendous, tremendous feat for those that were involved. But the FDA doesn't cut corners. In fact, the FDA hasn't approved these drugs yet. The FDA has actually made them authorized for use, and there will be subsequent approval. Uh, But the process the FDA uses really is all about safety, more so than even efficacy. You gotta prove efficacy, then you gotta show safety. The single greatest measure of efficacy in all trials is patient years of exposure. These three vaccines went on the market with 100,000 patient years of exposure. By comparison, Remicade went on the market in 1998, with a little more than 800 patient years. Humira in 2002 goes on the market with I think 2,400 patient years of experience. Now you're seeing anywhere from two to 3,000 with most drugs. 100,000 means there's no new surprises here. And when they are, they're like what we talked about a few weeks ago with with J&J and Janssen's one in a million event of thrombotic events. So safety, Um, I think that's sort of covered. The other issue are your patients who feel they live under a a cloud of disaster, the sort of Damocles, all bad things happen to them. You have to tell them they're not that special. When we talk about the risk being low, that same risk that applies to the janitor applies to them, a person with lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. Anyway, if there are any open questions about this session, I have two that I want to get to. Mark Fisher brings up the uh, Issue about being B surface antigen positive. I'm sorry, B surface antibody positive, and what that means. Um, I'm glad you brought that up because I didn't cover that well enough. If you are B surface antigen negative and core antibody positive, that is called uh, resolved infection. And I said there's a 2% lower risk. By the way, a 2% risk of reactivation with TNF inhibitors, abatacept, tocilizumab, uh, even JAK inhibitors. Not rituximab. It's higher with rituximab. Uh, But for all the other biologics, it's 2% risk. If you are B surface antibody positive by either natural or by vaccination, you are far less likely to reactivate. You still have to monitor, but you're still far less likely to reactivate. Uh, So that's, I think, a really important um, designation or or distinction that you need to um, be mindful of. Um, Marilyn Solsky asked the question, um, about, uh, patients, uh, receiving the vaccine our patients who are immunocompromised and may not have gotten a full response to the first two doses of an MRNA vaccine. What should we do? Should they get a, va- should they get a booster? Um, should we, should we be testing for antibodies? Uh, and the first thing is just mention the issue of testing. There's no point in testing since you don't know what to do about the testing. There's not a result that you can look at and say, ah, Because it's six, you can do this. And because it's four, you can do that. No one knows what to do with that data. Um, Do our patients, first off, the vast majority of my patients and the vast majority of autoimmune inflammatory disease, they are not immunocompromised. I'm sorry. And our drugs are not truly immunosuppressive. Most of our drugs are largely anti-inflammatory and tilt the balance back towards normalcy. It is inflammation that is the single greatest risk for being immunocompromised, inflammation, not the drugs we use. Yes, cytoxan, yes, gigantic doses of azathioprine with high dose steroids, that's a different story. But methotrexate, TNF inhibitors, IL-6 inhibitors, they're not immunosuppressed and you shouldn't be telling your patients that. Um, But even if your patients are immunosuppressed because of their lupus is very, very active and they're on four drugs, you know, Uh, what's going to happen to their vaccine response? We do know that our patients on our drugs do have lower responses. The lowest response is seen with rituximab. And that's why they're they're the greatest risk. And that's why you need a strategy for rituximab. And strategy with rituximab is easy. One, do they need the rituximab right now because they have horribly active disease or do they need the vaccine right now and can wait on rituximab? That's That's an easy scenario. If they are sick and they need rituximab, give them the rituximab. Give them, wait about, you know, they're going to, not going to be running around in airports anyway. They're going to be at home and convalescing and hospitals and clinics. Are, they're, they don't have no business being around everybody. So treat the disease first and then vaccinate when you can by holding rituximab and restarting it two to four weeks after your last dose of rituximab. Um, but patients on methotrexate are the next drug to suppress responses. And by comparison, methotrexate suppression of vaccine responses is a fraction of that. So if we say that that there's 40, 50, 60% suppression by rituximab, or maybe even 100, the amount of suppression by methotrexate in the background is less, is 20% or less. The amount of suppression by all the other drugs, abatacep, um, IL-6 inhibitors, IL-1 inhibitors, most, most other DMARDs, sulfazalazine, um, uh, hydroxychloroquine, apremilast, et cetera, really no effect or no consistent effect. And that's important. And that's why I disagree with the ACR guidelines and I've really paid no attention to them. Meaning um, I agree with everything they say, but holding your methotrexate, your JAK inhibitor and abatacept to receive an, um, a COVID vaccine really makes no sense to me. And I can shoot them down because We've been vaccinating people on methotrexate for many years until the recent Park article about use holding methotrexate with influenza vaccination. And we've been doing our patients good. And there's evidence of that. It's not as good as it should be. But remember, m- with Pfizer and Moderna, they're going to get two vaccinations while they're on met- methotrexate. The ACR is basically saying, or the, the, the U.S. task force is basically saying, hold it. <coughs> it's not going to do any harm to the patient, meaning they're You're holding it for a brief enough period that they're not going to flare their disease, and it may help their vaccine responses. All that's highly speculative. I think when you start building in a lot of rules, you're going to scare a lot of patients. Most of my patients have been vaccinated without any change in their therapy. I really have only been militant about rituximab and the timing of vaccination in those that are getting or about to get rituximab. The Abitacep, because it's a, it blocks T-cell, um, signaling, um, they, they wanted to hold it because this is a neo-immunization. That's very different. You know, repeat immunizations, booster immunizations like the Shingrix vaccine, because everyone's probably been exposed to chickenpox and whatnot. That's not a neo-immunization, even though it's a live virus vaccine. Um, everyone's thinking COVID vaccinations and neo-immunization. So you want your T-cells and B-cells working perfectly well. First off, there are a lot of patients who have already had exposure and have some immunity um, based on that exposure in the, in the environment, although they may not have had infection. Um, and again, there the evidence proving that being offered abatacept in this situation is going to be truly beneficial is speculative. I don't think it's worth the effort, to be honest with you. Um, and the JAK inhibitors, again, they are very Um, short-acting, you can hold them and do this without much flare, but being off a JAK inhibitor for two weeks, people will flare. People will get better within two weeks of starting a JAK inhibitor. Um, Dr. Xi asked about um, MMF. Do we need to hold for one week post-vaccine? No. MMF was in that long list of DMARDs and biologics that it is allowable to continue patients on MMF. Okay and it does not need to be held. Cytoxin and other cytotoxic immunosuppressants, um, you really do need to hold, if you can hold in those situations, but that usually is a, is a whole different kind of patient, a whole different kind of sick. Um, if we don't oh, actually, Marilyn had another question. Should patients who receive the mRNA vaccines um, before the ACR guidelines, um, uh, what can we do about them? Congratulate them, tell them to tell their families, that was the right thing to do. Um, It's too late to stop any of their therapies or to affect their outcomes at this point in time. Um, And and again, I wanna remind everybody what the recent numbers are on people who are supposed to receive Moderna or or the Pfizer-BioN vaccine. They're supposed to get two. If they get one, what's the protection? They get two, it's 95%. If they get one, the data this was covered in Room Now, and also based on a recent MMWR report, the protection is 70 to 82%. So people who wimp out, chicken out, and only got one, they're still getting pretty good protection, 70 to 82% protection compared to 95 with two with the two shots. The same, by the way, has already been demonstrated with Shingrix. People just getting one Shingrix vaccine are also majority of them are protected, although not as well as when you get two shingrick shots, which is, again, as you know, over 90% effective. So that's it for this week of Tuesday night rheumatology and highlights from Room Now Live. We're going to end up next week with a big bang, our lupus expert session. Um, We're going to hear from um, Michelle Petrie from Johns Hopkins, uh, Maureen um, McMahon from UCLA, uh and a dermatopathologist clay cockerel um actually big in the dermatopathology world big in lupus dermatopathology they're going to talk to us next week in our final session um of highlights from room now live and then we're going to get into covering uh ULAR, which is going to start the first week of june hope you enjoyed this session glad you were here tell your friends about our last session which is going to come up next week take care goodbye